and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that wants all knowledge to be free and accessible. Today we have Zoe, Kellen, and Laura. I always feel so, like, cheesy in the beginnings, but, um, <laughs> like, every, like, intro, I'm like, ugh. Why? But, first of all, cheesy is fine, and second of all, literally, like, who has, I feel like being cheesy is, like, a lucky feeling right now, because everything feels so despairing. <laughs> well, you pull off cheesy well, but it's because of your Pisces. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay, <laughs> Sorry. It doesn't suit me personally. I but. feel you. I feel you. But you're <laughs> rocking it as a Sag. Thank you so much. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> but aside from our astrology charts, um, which we always talk about, today we're going to be talking about libraries and how they intersect with class issues, feminist issues, labor power, queerness, surveillance, COVID-19, probably other things that come up. But before we get into that, we have a very special queer librarian joining us today to help answer all of our questions. Welcome, Elliot. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. So since we're talking about libraries today, I thought I would just kind of run down like an abbreviated resume, basically, so that you know like what libraries I've worked in and what types of libraries I haven't worked in. So I got my master's in library science from Simmons College. And in grad school, I had two internships. One was at Mount Holyoke College doing reference things. And one was at a public library doing uh, running programs for teens. Mm. And then I worked for a couple of years as a library assistant in a high school. And then I worked uh, as a reference librarian in the boarding school, and now I work at a community college also as a reference librarian. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Cool. My roommate is in a master's of um, library sciences program right now. Oh, wow. I love talking <laughs> to people who know people who've, who've done that or who work. <laughs> yeah, like definitely. Inside scoop, yeah. Can you, um, can you explain for people who might not be familiar what a what a reference librarian means? Sure, that's a good point. So right now I work in a community college. I think you usually see reference librarians at the college level. Mm-hmm. Um, I did also do that kind of job at a boarding school, but it was, I don't know, a pretty academically rigorous boarding school. Most high schools probably would not have that type yeah. of role. Um, but it's basically a librarian whose job it is to help you with research. So often in that role, you would be teaching some classes and going in and helping students who are doing a research project for a class and then just being available for their questions, basically. Very cool. Cool. How did you, like, what led to you deciding that you wanted to be a librarian? Yeah, that's kind of a long, I have a bit of a long answer, I think. Um, It takes a while to figure out what you want to do. I I was an English (laughs) in in undergrad and I thought I was going to be a teacher and I thought that's what I wanted to do but I thought I should get some practice basically so I volunteered at this place called North Star Self-Directed Learning for Teens which is a really interesting place it's not a school it's it's an academic learning center it's it's basically for homeschool students um 
And it was essentially like the easiest teaching experience you could imagine because it's it's a lot like a college, like students take classes that they want to take. And honestly, if they don't feel like going to class, they kind of don't have to. So, you know, all of the quote unquote, like behavioral problems that you would see in a high school or whatever, because high school is difficult, there just wasn't any of that there. And so it was really easy, but I still didn't love teaching all the time. I thought it was really stressful. So I thought libraries would be a good place where I could teach some of the time, but also have a lot of one-on-one interactions and just be surrounded by books and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm, Yes. I have thought multiple times about going to get a master's in library science because I feel similarly. I'm just like, "Mm, yes. Yeah. Teaching is stressful, but if you, if you end up in a college library, you get to teach. Yeah. Some of the time, but not all of the time, or even in a high school or, or, you know, K through 12 type library, it's, you're not all all day, every day teaching, so it's nice. Yeah, absolutely. So this next question came from one of our co-hosts, Walida, who wasn't able to be here today. Um, but she she saw a tweet somewhat recently where someone stated that they were tired of, quote, buying books and um, had this thought that there should be a way for people to share <laughs> books for free uh, <laughs> with each other. Um and they got properly owned by everyone tweeting, like, quote, congratulations on inventing the library at them. But uh, it never left Walida's mind because it speaks to the deep underutilization of public libraries. Um, they've been considered really revolutionary spaces that offered three free thought and free access to reading anything for social gatherings and meeting spaces, um, which leftists can attest to. It is extremely difficult, if not possible, to find cheaper free public meeting spaces that are also accessible, easily reachable by public transit. Um, and it's hard not to just kind of think that's by design. Um, and libraries offer all of these things to people. So, um, it is no wonder that they have often been the target for budget cuts and political attacks by the class that benefits least from people being able to meet and read freely. Um, so I kind of, she was curious as to how do you think the well-funded, ubiqu- ubiquitous libraries and library services can inform organizing social welfare and education, among other things? Does, that, does her question make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I feel like there's a couple, there's like two parts to it, basically. There's the books mm-hmm. aspect. And I'm honestly, I'm really happy to start this conversation off talking about books because I feel like I spend so much time defending libraries to people. And one of my, uh, to skeptics, I guess, I don't, and one of my main tactics is to talk about technology and resources that people probably haven't heard of. But I mean, I would still support libraries even if all they did was provide books. Like, yeah. I think that's that's not a small thing, and that's really important, and it's still very useful. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's really funny that someone kind of forgot that they exist. But mm-hmm. as far as meeting spaces go, I definitely agree that libraries are really radical just in the sense that they're kind of one of the only places that you can go without spending money, that you're allowed to just exist and where honestly, unless you're like a hate group, anybody is allowed to gather there. Like you can, your purpose doesn't really matter to the library, you know, as long as you're following their rules, like anybody can meet to do 
virtually anything. And it's a really radical space in that sense. Yeah. And my follow up was, I, I also feel like, and I know this isn't the norm. Like I, I love libraries and I think that they have such a potential for space, but also because we live in a society that is homophobic and racist and classist and all of these things. Um, I think because libraries are a public space, sometimes we see, at least for me, I've, I've like witnessed and also experienced like repeating of hierarchies of oppression within this public space. Um, and again, I don't think it's very common. I think it happens in certain ways, but I just like remember being approached by, uh, a security guard when I, my girlfriend and I at the time were just like hugging in a public library and he came up and he was like, you know, we don't want people to get the wrong idea. And maybe that was just like a homophobic security guard, but I've also seen, you know, the security guards enforce like people who might seem like they're homeless or, or things like that. Uh, like the interaction on that front, I guess like the security side of, library spaces I don't really know how to phrase what I'm asking no that's that's interesting that does make sense to me I feel like it's true that basically the library space is only going to be as good as the people who work there and I mean I'm in a couple of different library like social media groups and and forums and I've definitely seen librarians discussing you know, how they handle, for example, like homeless people sleeping, falling asleep in the library. And it's really interesting and sad, like the different responses to mm-hmm. that. I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine waking anybody up unless it was time to close. Like I, right. but, but it's true. Different libraries have different people in charge and, and those people make policies and they might, yeah, they might not be great. That's true. <laughs> it really is only as good as the people who work there. That's, that's true. Totally. A question I had that that sort of arose from Walida's question as well is um, just about the sort of ever-present or ever-absent sort of funding for libraries. And I was wondering, you know, from your position, why do you think that, like, politicians are so willing to cut programs run out of libraries and funding for libraries themselves? That's a good question. I feel like for basically the same reason that politicians are willing to cut any social program you think about who library programs and libraries are most beneficial for or right now I mean we can talk about it in the context of the fact that most public libraries are closed right now because of COVID-19 and and who's being harmed the most by that probably homeless people and people without computers books and wi-fi and you know poor populations so I don't know why politicians are so willing to cut library budgets, but probably for the same reasons that they cut other social programs, you know, for vulnerable people, basically. Yeah, no, that makes that makes total sense. And it speaks to the fact that because of sort of the dearth of public spaces that both Walida and Laura, Walida in her absence and Laura um, were alluding to, that the library becomes, especially the public library, which I recognize is not exactly the environment that you work in, but the the public library becomes a sort of catch-all 
um, for public services. So it's fulfilling, you know, not just an educational role, but also serves frequently as like a stand-in homeless shelter, um, a place where people can go during the day to, to stay warm. Um, it's a technology hub. Um, it's a sort of a daycare center. There's so many roles that the public libraries fulfill um, because we don't have other services um, that might be better suited filling those roles. Oh, that's definitely completely true. And, and I mean, when you go to get training, if you go to a master's program or even just start working on the job, we talk about that kind of stuff all the time and we train to the best of our ability, but it's true. I mean, we're not social workers. The space isn't set up for that. It's, it's unfortunate that, I mean, I'm happy for libraries to step up and sort of fill a gap, but obviously the gap like really shouldn't be there in the first place. So it's Absolutely. tough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about in um, your article for StrikeWave that you sent that we'll uh, link to in the description, but you were talking about how like budget cuts to libraries create a self-fulfilling prophecy where then like the usage of libraries declines because they don't have as many resources to offer. Could you talk more about that and like how you've seen that play out in your experience? Yeah, definitely. I I'll start by saying that it really depends where you work and my personal experience has been all over the place and I mean I did work at a boarding school where one of the hardest things about my job was just trying to buy books fast enough because the budget was so huge wow. but these huge <laughs> endowment you know it's obviously a good problem to have and not <laughs> the case but there's all sorts of different libraries with different situations but I think largely public libraries tend to be underfunded and I did write that article for very personal reasons because this was a little worse when I was in grad school, but it still happens now. When I talked about becoming a librarian, or even when I talk about being a librarian, mostly with people I don't know, I get this, either people are really supportive, and probably a slight majority are very supportive, or people are just always asking me if I think that libraries are going to exist in the future. I just I hear it all the time, and it's very strange to me. Um, and... You know, I went into researching for that article, honestly, a little scared that I would find out that I was wrong and that libraries aren't being used, like that these people are correct. Um, but I wanted to see the numbers. And most of my research came from the Pew Research Center or this organization called the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And this is really cool. They They do a survey every year. It's really, really a huge amount of data. It takes a long time for them to process. So they're usually a few years behind, but they get something like 97% of public libraries to respond. So I just want to start by saying that, like, we don't have to guess about these things. Like, we have the numbers because libraries keep numbers on things like visitation, circulation, computer use, and attendance for programs. Like, we know what it looks like. And as it turns out, libraries are very much still being used. Basically, there was a slight overall average decrease following budget cuts um, in the following a recession of like 2008, 2009. And budgets since then have mostly recovered and usage has mostly recovered, mm -hmm. but it seems like a pretty clear correlation between budgets getting cut and then all of those metrics going down. And so the self-fulfilling prophecy part, to me, it just, it seems like people will say, no one uses the library anymore, so we should cut the budget. Right. And then they cut the budget, and then it becomes true. And they look, they say, look, look, the numbers are so low. And it's just, 
Oh, and it's also worth noting, this is really interesting, that while, yes, decreasing the bu the budget does decrease all of those metrics, increasing budgets has a more substantial impact. It, you know, the all of those metrics increase more when the budget is increased than they do decrease when the budget's decreased. So basically, even when you slash budgets, people still use the library. So, <laughs> long answer, yeah. No, I mean, it's a great answer. I feel like when we were prepping for this episode, it made me realize how many friends I have that are librarians, which was really fun, or or library workers. Like, I have a dear friend who, um, I guess her title would be, like, a clerk. Um, she's just, like, helps work in the library and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, one of my friends... Um, <laughs> works at the university at Buffalo and she's amazing. She's the re the the research librarian there. Is it research or reference? It is either. I okay. actually think I misspoke earlier. I think I was technically the research librarian at this boarding school and now I'm a reference librarian. It's very easy to mix up because it's basically the same exact job. Exactly. I don't know why they call and it. Yes, I think, I think she's a reference librarian, but she focuses on some specific genres um with like at the university with students who are trying to do research oh, cool. but she also uh she and her husband both work uh in the library and they're also both like radical leftists and uh they together mapped across the city of buffalo where the those small like little house libraries are throughout the city because they wanted to see um the little free libraries yes yes yeah. that are like in tiny huts and shit yeah right um <laughs> and they so they did a whole map like an interruptive map of where those are and then like overlaid where because in buffalo a lot of libraries have been shut down um in recent years, like similar to everywhere else. And they got really pissed because when they mapped it, it definitely correlated to the libraries that were suffering the most. And now, like, of course, correlation doesn't mean causation, but those tiny libraries also feel like the hyper individualism version of actual libraries, which for me is like deeply indicative of our poisoned society. Um, <laughs> and I just wanted to know, like, what are your thoughts on... I feel like we could also see them as, like, a mutual aid library, right? Because it's, like, you, like, give a book, take a book, those things. Yeah, I mean, you you, you can think of it that way. <laughs> I mean, not that they shouldn't be publicly offered as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I feel like it's really cool that your friends did that research, but that's yeah. really – they sound like librarians. It sounds like – Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're librarians <laughs> for sure. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that does sound really sad. And I feel like that is just pretty clear evidence that those communities are in need. And I don't know. I mean, people need books. People also do need to be able to own books. This is kind of a separate issue. I don't have any solutions for it. But it's, you know, especially young young children. I don't know. I mean, libraries are great. And, and everyone should have access to the library. But I don't know. People do also need to be able to get their hands on a book that they don't have to get return right. i don't know and that they can just like hold on to forever yeah. and go back to in. and so yeah i don't know getting books into people's hands is really important and and yeah i definitely don't think that those those little free libraries they're cute they're cool but 
Not a solution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure, for sure. Well, I mean, that's what I meant in that. Yeah. Like mutual aid should never be like mutual aid is solidarity in the gaps of our system. So it's like that should obviously never be the preference. But mm-hmm. it's like a taking care of each other. Like when my neighbors leave a box of free books out, that's garbage. And then I take one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I just did this week and I got this book. It's like I forget the name. It's like the journal of like an economic hitman basically this guy that was paid to like go around the world and be an economic hitman like had a reckoning of his conscience and like wrote this whole book and i don't know about it yet because i haven't read it but it looks interesting Hmm. (laughs) so anyway switching gears um to the topic that is on everyone's mind right now COVID-19 what has the response been from libraries kind of as we were talking like they do function as shelter for a lot of homeless people and um you know like kids after school that don't have somewhere else to go and stuff like that so like kind of what have those effects looked like yeah so I wrote if anyone's interested um, who's listening and wants to look at like the all of the data um, library journal did a survey about this and I was able to write up their data for them which was really interesting Uh, they surveyed 777 public libraries as of March 23rd almost all of them are closed it was something like 94 percent probably more now um And one of the major responses was to increase marketing for digital programs, like try to push audiobooks and ebooks. Some libraries started doing curbside delivery service of books, but then when I was looking at the data, there were also there were these um, sort of short response areas, and it sounded like a lot of librarians were personally concerned for their own safety Mm. doing that. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I can't speak to it. And I can also tell you a little bit about my own experience. I mean, I'm in a community college library, but we definitely didn't close until we had to, until it was mandated to basically. And it was pretty scary. And I mean, we started offering chat reference um, on, you know, for an academic library. I think a lot of them were doing that. We also bought hundreds of Chromebooks and Wi-Fi hotspots because we do have a lot of students who don't have computers and internet. And so my last days at the library were just scrambling with my coworkers to get those um, to get those ready for students to check out and things like that and try to get them to students in time. But another scary thing looking at that data and especially reading the short responses, it seems like librarians are very scared. I think people read the news and they see that libraries are closed and they think that that means that librarians are home, but most public librarians in that survey are still working in person, at mm-hmm. least for the like at least to some extent and they're definitely scared for their safety. And most of them are getting paid, but some people certainly aren't. And also, I don't know if any of you saw the news story about de Blasio threatening the Brooklyn and Queens library budgets. He basically told them not to close and threatened to defund them if they, like, to cut their budgets if they did close. And then they closed. So we'll see what happens Mm. at the end of the fiscal year. To those libraries like anyway it's obviously like like a lot of you know it's scary like like every other industry <laughs> you know yeah um, yeah my roommate is at a college um library in brooklyn and like was working you know pretty much as long as like places were allowed to be open um 
But the last week, like, I was asking her if she was, like, nervous. And she she was like, honestly, it's fine because no one's coming in. So I don't really have human interaction. I'm just being paid. Yeah. <laughs> That's another major concern. I mean, I personally <laughs> am ex- extremely lucky that I'm, I'm home and I'm getting paid still. But that was because my direct supervisor, my boss, is really awesome. But the person in charge of the college is not so great and he really waited basically we have a union that was like calling the governor and trying to push him to mandate closures and then he did so that's good yeah um can you tell us about services that libraries provide that listeners might not know about um or might not have used before yeah i'd love to i've definitely i think i've already mentioned ebooks and audiobooks uh, so far in this discussion, which, you know, people do know about, but I don't know that everyone realizes that you can get those things for free from your library. I use Overdrive all the time to get audiobooks, and it's great, Uh, especially now that Mm -hmm. I can't go to the library at the moment. Uh, Another really, really interesting one is basically been coined the library of things, but that basically encapsulates like any physical thing that's not a book that you can check out. And different libraries, you know, have different objects that they may or may not um, circulate. So like games, puzzles. One of the libraries in my area circulates instruments, which is really cool. You can check out like a guitar, a violin, a ukulele, what have you. Um, There are seed libraries where you can (laughs) check out Mm. seeds. I mean, this all depends on where you live, right? There's even one uh, library in Shutesbury, Massachusetts, where I believe they circulate canoes and kayaks because they have like a river (laughs) which is really cool gardening equipment basically like any object that can be loaned yeah we have a tool library i think that's really cool and as i've already mentioned computers and wi-fi hotspots but that's another big one that some libraries have and then finally i feel like I don't know. I think when people think of programming for libraries, they think about kids and teens, but there are tons of really cool adult programs. And that's, I don't know, it's a fun thing to do that doesn't cost money. Um, My partner and I took a six week ASL class that was really fun and free. So uh, programs for adults are another one. Yeah. Yeah, I also wanted to add something that I know some libraries have that I didn't realize until I also had a library sciences friend tell me about it. Um, Shout out to Sharon. I think she listens to this podcast. Um, Sharon! (laughs) And that is, and she worked in, so she spent some time working specifically in what's called a fab lab or a fabrication lab. Um, And she, I believe this was on... Um, a college campus. Um, But I know that some libraries, especially, um, unfortunately, and perhaps not surprisingly, just it tends to be in libraries that are in particularly well resourced communities. Um, But a fabrication lab is a place where you can like go to a library and make stuff. Um, So like 3D printers, um, Sharon made me and my partner um, uh, like wood cut out pictures of our cats on magnets for Christmas one year like really cool stuff and I had no idea that I mean and part of it is that like this technology didn't exist when I was like a kid you know going to the library um but libraries aren't just for kids uh newsflash um (laughs) so anyway that was something that I thought was really really cool that I had no idea up until a couple of years ago like even existed and was like available to at least like some of the public 
Yeah, I um want I wanted to kind of like echo what you were saying in a different way. Um, two things that I know the Buffalo Public Library Central Branch has, which like obviously not now in in the light of everything, but um, my one friend Grace who works at the main branch, she works in a similar type of space, but she so she's in charge of like custom button making which is really fun she's made a bunch of buttons for my music project and um the other thing that she's in charge of is the public recording studio so there's um a really kind of like bare bones recording studio inside the public library and I think that that's not like a buffalo only thing I think that there are other public libraries that have that going on too so um you you know it's nothing that um is obviously like out of control but it is a cool resource to have there and she says that she sees like a ton of young like hip-hop artists in particular come through and just like put down some tracks which is fun for sure that's really cool. Yeah, that's I mean, cool. recording is so expensive. I feel that's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, sort of going off that, and you were saying a little in the beginning, like people that are like, oh, we don't need books anymore. Like we have technology. Um, and obviously we do still need books, but technology does have such a huge effect on, or has had and continues to have an effect on like so many industries. So what, have the effects of technology been like for libraries? Yeah, so I want to start like pretty historically. I actually think libraries have been very good at responding to technological changes for a very long time. So card catalogs started to be digitized actually in the 80s. And there's a little forgotten women's history there as well because there's this woman, Henriette Avram, who invented uh, machine-readable cataloging, which is still the format that's used today. So, I mean, everybody knows about the Dewey Decimal System, but people don't know about this person who created, basically, a way to digitize card catalogs so that we wouldn't have to be using little pieces of paper forever. Uh, So that's pretty cool. Um, But obviously, in, in more recent years, I feel like when people talk about when they pose that question of, do you think libraries are going to be around in the future? I think what they're really getting at is the internet, which I think is kind of funny because, I mean, if that were true, wouldn't it be true? Wouldn't that be happening now? I mean, the internet's been around for a bit, you know, it's not, it's not <laughs> brand new at this point. It's kind of funny to me, but I mean, when you think about the impact of the internet, I think what people are getting at is that you no longer have to go to the library to look up to physically look up like little thing pieces of information because of Google and that's obviously that's true and I think that's good and I think that's that's fine but that doesn't really mean that libraries don't have important research tools obviously I mean scholarly information unfortunately is very very expensive I mean it's a racket basically for everybody involved and libraries even public libraries sometimes have research databases where you can get access to those things but definitely also on the college level a lot that's that's what we do and I mean you can use things like Google Scholar but you're you're gonna come up against paywalls all the time so that's another thing that libraries provide and of course librarians are trained in helping you to to look at that information, which I think is as important, if not more, than that's like ever been. Um, I already talked about ebooks and audiobooks. Of course, 
Wi-Fi in the sense of, you know, you can go to the library and use it. Um, you can even sit in the parking lot. If you're in a rural community and the library is closed, you can get online. People do that. Um, and public access computers. But I also wanted to talk about the fact that I really just don't think it's a problem for specific things that the library offers to kind of come and go. Because looking at the data for that strike wave article, I found that, you know, we've already past the peak of people going to the library to use a computer in person. I mean, of course, people still do, but I think that the high level of that usage has sort of come and gone. And that's that's really fine. I mean, I think you talk on this podcast a lot about not how things are, but like how they should be. Mm -hmm. And really, I mean, a lot of the things that libraries provide, I don't think they should be providing because ideally everyone would just have Wi-Fi. And then those metrics would just go down and that, that would be fine. That would be fine by me. You know, I don't need libraries to keep providing these things because in a lot of cases they really shouldn't. But I do think overall library, like there are just more things offered today because of technology yeah. than there were in the past, basically. That's very cool. Um, I wanted to shout out my friend Allison who started this organization <laughs> called the library freedom project. And, um, so she specifically trains librarians on privacy and surveillance. She sees libraries as the front lines of information, particularly for low-income communities, and therefore also possibly the front lines of security and surveillance issues. Um, do you work with privacy concerns at all related to libraries? I don't personally. It sounds like this person probably knows more than I do about those things, but I think anybody who works in a library is definitely trained in terms of patron privacy and I don't think that everyone necessarily realizes this that like you could go into a public library and you could ask for like your like what the last book your like spouse checked out or something I and mean, you're not going to get that like it doesn't mm. we're very very strict about not giving out information because of things that have happened in the past and if you don't mind I would like to tell you a story about that please we would love <laughs> to hear do. yes <laughs> story. Not, a, not about me um but this is like very infamous in the library world and so few people know about it it's just very very interesting crazy thing that happened um okay so this was I'm really excited yeah you should be <laughs> really good I believe this was in in 2005 definitely the early 2000s that um there were these like librarians at the learning company TLC which is basically it's it's this they're librarians trained librarians but this was like a it's the back end of a of a catalog basically they run that software anyway mm. somebody sh showed up to this place um from the FBI with a national security letter under the Patriot Act asking the head person in charge of this software company, this librarian, for all of the records from 27 or so area libraries from a particular day. He wanted to know <laughs> what everyone had looked at, basically all of the patron activity from that particular day. And the letter said that if he didn't turn over this data that he could be fined or jailed and that there was an automatic gag order so he could also get in trouble for telling anybody about this. Whoa. Um, very crazy. <laughs> um, and then he immediately broke the gag order as soon as the guy left. He told uh, his like three co-workers and asked them like what they should do about it. And basically, well, I, I skipped a step. He told the person in person, I think this is unconstitutional. Like, I'm not going to do this. Um, but he couldn't even tell if he was allowed to like have get a lawyer. It just sounds really terrifying. Yeah. But basically they fought it 
And then the case was dropped. There was a trial that the case was dropped. And then the gag order was dropped and they could talk about this. But it was just like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. This is yeah. the kind of thing that we discuss and, and train ourselves for. But it's 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 crazy to think about that actually happening and being posed with that. Like, you could go to jail if you don't do this, if you don't turn over this data. And, like, there's a long history of that kind of thing happening, like, obviously mm-hmm. under, like, McCarthy era and stuff in the in libraries. But that could certainly happen today and happened not that long ago. So it's, it's just something that we all have to be like ready for, but that's, uh, that's just a story that people who work in libraries really like, cause, <laughs> cause it all worked out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I know something kind of related that you wanted to talk about with us was censorship. Can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. So yeah, it's another thing that there's a long, history of libraries having to defend against is basically book challenges when when somebody's when we use the term like banned book or challenged book of course we don't legally ban books in this country but when a book is challenged that means that someone has come into the library and either said I think you should remove this I think you should move this out of the children's section or something along those lines and I'll just say on a personal level, it, it really it happens more often than you might think, and it makes me kind of not want to work in a in a K through twelve or public library because that's where it really happens a lot. Whoa. And yeah, just a little bit of data on this. So apparently, I looked this up recently, but in two thousand eighteen, the American Library Association they they listed their top. 11 like most frequently challenged books and six of them were queer in some way so the number one book on that list was George which I think has a has a trans main character the number four book on that list was The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas which is about police brutality and there's a movie about it now um so I just think it's it's seems pretty clear what the political leanings tend to be on people who challenge books and I'm sure that you've run into this kind of argument in like other contexts where people will basically say, I just think it's really easy for people to go into a public library, take like a queer YA book, for example, and say like, oh, I'm not against queer people. I just, this book is, has sexual content. And so this is inappropriate for teens. That kind of thing happens Fuck a lot. Off. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I also always think of um, Maya Angelou's book that got banned or whatever restricted whatever you call it um for having like childhood rape and being like anti-childhood rape and people were like how dare you yeah nuance is just not part of the discussion yeah (laughs) it's crazy oh and authors of color are also predominantly like take make up a higher percentage of books that get challenged like it's just it's very clear and it just makes me think about you know all of the free speech sort of Right. nonsense <laughs> that, yeah. that like right wingers will talk about it's like if you really cared about free speech then why are you the same demographic of people who are trying to get books out banned from libraries like obviously that's not totally genuine. yeah well and it also is like I know people who listen to this podcast know this because we've had like two queer literature episodes and we're just like obsessed with queer literature but you know, and I think we've kind of emphasized this on those those episodes, but you know, I think it can be rebrought up here where young people having access and and adults, anyone having access to books, to stories that they can identify with is extremely important. Um, 
on a safety level, you know, for, for their mental sanity. If they're in a, if they're maybe a young trans student who, um, doesn't feel like they, they can continue to exist or doesn't feel like they can, uh, you know, be themselves around them, their families or anything like that. But then they start reading books of stories. I don't know. I just feel like it's so important for those books to be present and like I always am so curious for the like Karens who are coming after these sorts of things and who are like that's a slur (laughs) (laughs) oh shit I forgot I saw some I have been off the internet today but then I like logged on right before this and I saw a bunch of memes about that so I missed it but Karen discourse sorry first thing I read when I woke up this morning oh Jesus oh Karen's a slur wow yeah (laughs) Yes. Well, sorry. Sorry, but also not sorry, honestly, because they're the ones that are doing it. It's like these white middle class women who and upper class women who are like trying to, quote unquote, protect their children from the evils. I mean, like, honestly, maybe I'm projecting here because I grew up in a like upper middle class fucking Catholic family who like did all the same shit was like trying to, quote unquote, protect me from uh a lot of these things. Anyway, I'm going on a major tangent, but I just I can't echo enough how important it is that those books stay in the library. <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating. And I think like librarians will consciously try to get books like that, knowing that that teenagers in particular need all kinds of information that they're not going to get elsewhere. Right. And then that's exactly the kind of books that people try to take out of the library. And it's really frustrating. I also wanted to mention Okay, this is like, I don't mean to self-promote here, but I did make a video about this on my YouTube channel if anyone wants to watch me rant for like a very long time. You should absolutely self-promote here. (laughs) Send us the link. But yeah, I just, I did like a full (laughs) rant where I read this entire bill and like broke it down because it was really like horrifying but entertaining. There's this bill, I think it's still like hasn't been voted on. I don't know. I mean, I hope it doesn't pass in Missouri where, um, this person is trying to create a parental... It's called the Parental Oversight of Public Libraries Act. Ew, ew. Uh, they're trying to make like a parental <laughs> advisory board that has the power to basically just remove books from the library. And, I mean, it's horrifying, but it's also just... I mean, I don't know. I get. I just get a real kick out of the fact that... I don't know. It just, it's just... It's terrible, but... I just feel like just, everyone needs to remember that parents had zero training to become parents, and librarians and other educators had a lot of training to interact with young people and understand ages and stages and a lot of times parents get that shit fucking way wrong and so parent oversight board literally makes me want to vomit it's terrible also i feel like as a parent like unfortunately you do kind of have the power to censor information from your kids Mm -hmm. but they want to go one step further and make sure that nobody else's kids can read these books either and that's what really really is like yeah, that's what yeah, it's, that's what makes it like explicitly censorship when it's not even just, oh, I don't want my kid to read this. It's like, no, we can't have this book in the library. It's like, right. If, if, if we just took every li- book out of the library that someone had a problem with, there would not be any books left. Like, is that what you want? I don't know. It's really, it's really upsetting. Yeah, that's super tough. Yeah. 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 I also just wanted to say like to what Laura was saying about the importance of like, kids especially but everyone being able to access certain books and like being exposed to it so for my um 
10th or 11th grade English teacher. She like read through the required reading list, which of course is like all fucking books by white dudes. And she like went through it and like read the names and was like, white man, white man, white man after everyone. And then she ripped up the curriculum and threw it in the trash can and handed us out her reading list, which was like mostly like women of color writers. And like as fucked up as it is, that was the first time that I really had read books that were not by white men for my public school education. And that was like hugely influential for me. Look at me now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought we could, sorry, (laughs) I thought we could close um, because we're close to the end here. Um, If you had any books that you wanted to recommend that you've come across recently and loved, especially in the time of of COVID where we're all just like, what is time? (laughs) This is always such a hard question to answer. I feel like I should be ready to answer this question at any moment because I get asked it all the time. I even, that YouTube channel that I referenced is like partly like, is mostly about books, but I don't know. The books just like fall out of my head when I get asked this. I mean, I just today finished My Year of Meats. Oh, man, I forget who wrote that, though. It was really it was very good. It was I mean, there's a lot of like, I don't know, uh, factual information about like like horrifying stuff about factory farming and such like woven into this beautiful story about these two women and their like fertility issues and how that relates to I don't know meat and stuff it was interesting and good but um definitely not like a light fun read for right now uh <laughs> yeah now now i have a recommendation for like a a fluffier read it's called bunny have any of you heard of it no. it came out kind of recently um i have to look up the author once again i think mona awad yeah she it's about a woman in like an mfa program for writing um but then it gets very witchy very fast. <laughs> it gets very, like, there's this clique of, of women who all call each other bunny, and they, like, won't really hang out with her. But then they, they invite her to their, I think they call it a slut salon or something. I don't know. Hell and yeah. they invite, I love this. <laughs> and then things get very, like, w- witchy and creepy and and very very bizarre and the whole time she's also kind of making fun of like pretentious mfa style writing which i also really appreciate mm. that it's, it's funny mm. and dark sort of yeah like the craft as oh a, like set in an oh mfa program yeah it's very good oh, wow yes <laughs> wow. exactly what i'm looking for exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um amazing is there anything else you'd like to share before we say goodbye for now no, I think that I think that about covers it. Yeah, everyone should support the local libraries once they are back up and running. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, and thank you so so much, Elliot, for coming on the show. We really appreciate your knowledge and all the things that you had to share. Thank you so much for thank having you. me. I really appreciate thank it. You. Yeah. Well, that was very informative and fun. Um, If you liked this interview, you can follow us at Season of the Bee on Twitter or Instagram. Elliot, our guest today, had reached out to us via Instagram being like, hey, I have this topic I really want to talk about. And uh, we obviously had them on. So if you have a topic that you're like, I'm really knowledgeable, I think people should know reach out to us. You could also email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. You can slide us some money on Patreon. Um, 
at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. We've been doing some extra COVID content and Patreon only like movie watch night or TV show watch nights that have been really fun. And I think that's everything. Wow. Yes, it absolutely is. I just want to um, update everyone because I just kind of saw this and I'm actually living for my young idols kind of having a little bit of communist tendencies right now. Like, you know, our queen, Britney Spears. Um, uh, Pink, two weeks ago, sorry, Pink uh, and her three-year-old son were showing symptoms for COVID-19. We're both tested positive. Um, it was actually really intense. He was really sick, but they're both negative now. And she just like posted all on Twitter, like a major rant about this, this country and how fucked up it is that most people aren't getting access to tests and how like all this stuff. And everyone is like, all these conservatives are like breaking. Pink said she had recovered from she has recovered from COVID-19 and lashes out at the nation's response to the pandemic. And she's like, damn right I did. Shouldn't we all? <laughs> um, Pink's song, Dear Mr. President, uh, against George W. Bush. Do, do either of you know that song? No. Okay. Well, this is a tangent, but it like changed my life in the early 2000s. And there's this line where she's like, what kind of father would hate his own daughter if she were gay? Which gave me like chills. And I listened to the song when I was in the car with my dad, and he was like, whoa. And that is a moment that has stuck with me. So anyway, we love Pink. We stand. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that has been my celebrity COVID update. And I love you both. (laughs) Yeah. So we are also still doing Season of the Stoner, as we did last year. So if you are not already a patron, you can go to our Patreon and get 420 or more but 420 is fun um or 666 is is also fun Mm -hmm. and then for 420 we'll be doing a very fun silly episode with substances (laughs) of our choice yeah fuck yeah and we did it last year and it was really fun so uh oh my god this is the it's okay. longest it's outro. Okay. We'll just, it's fine. It's fine. Okay, let's just do love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. Love you. Guys, bye. 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 Season of the Bitch. <laughs>